Today, we are discussing who is the greatest Batman visionary creator of all space and time and why is his name Frank Miller? Yep, you guessed it. It's Dark Knight. It's on the plate once again due to the overwhelming support for Batman Day. Yes, he gets his own day. They celebrate it all over social media. Batman Day. We look at Frank Miller and we just give it to you as straight as we possibly can. The 10 ways that he revitalized and rejuvenated and transformed Batman for all time after on the seminal Dark Knight masterpiece that he put out in 1986. We go through all of that and then a prominent Hollywood producer. Was he right when he proposed to me that DC Comics peaked in 1985-86 and they've been looking to get back to that place ever since? Can they ever crawl past Watchmen, Dark Knight, Crisis on Infinite Earths? We talk about it today on an all-new Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. I have been making the comic books for 37 years, hired as a young teenage boy. I went on to uh, make my way through the comics industry, making comics like Hawk and Dove, uh, the, the New Mutants. I even did an issue of Warlord, X-Force, X-Factor, X-Men. Started Image Comics with my buddies. That turned 30 years this uh, this year alone. So, so I've been publishing, writing, producing, crafting, drawing, inking uh, comics for, for all these many years. And that doesn't even count all the years that I was crafting my way towards the business, drawing sequential art, 15, 16, 17, all the years prior to me breaking in at 18 years old. I have been extremely fortunate. I have had the most uh, amazing career. By amazing, I mean the most fun. It has been a blast. Along the way, met some amazing people, had my work turn into cartoons and video games and shelves and shelves and shelves and storage units of toys. Uh, you might have seen either Deadpool uh, movies, big giant billion dollar franchise there. We we really lucked out. You guys uh, just showed up in massive droves the second Deadpool movie. Built out the universe. We promise we're going to build it out even more in the third. Started this podca- podcast. <laughs> started this podcast to take you along on my ride, my journey through comic books and the 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 way that they have lifted me up, inspired me, distracted me, uh, comforted me, been there for me uh, when the chips were, were were down. And I have started my journey from when I personally started interacting with the comics. About six, seven years old, some comics from the barbershop turned into comics on the spinner rack, turned into all the different haunts that I've taken you guys with me. You know that you have felt like you have walked through that liquor store with me. You know you have. It was so great. It, it, th- those are some of my favorite memories because the comics were so great. Okay. When you, when, when you bought a bunch of the John Byrne, Terry Austin, X-Men run at that location and Neil Adams, Superman versus Muhammad Ali and the first appearance of Moon Knight and the giant size X-Men number one, which reset the clock on the X-Men and all your favorite Avengers issues, that liquor store will resonate with you. 
I hit the 7-Eleven. I hit the Stater Brothers across the street. Stater Brothers, the one that stands out to me is the first appearance of Black Cat, the female uh, uh, kind of... Uh, mercenary I, I, I hesitate to call her a super villain but she was introduced I think her name is Felicia Hardy if I'm not mistaken in the in the pages of Amazing Spider-Man that was a really oh my gosh I can't believe this character is cool she's about to get the drop on Spider-Man on the cover uh, you know as we do our monsters series and continue on that we already established Werewolf by Night a couple weeks ago because hey everyone's doing Halloween already <laughs> So why why are we waiting on Halloween? I'm trying to pace this out and get to uh, Frankenstein Monster, but the Frankenstein Monster is battling Thor on an epic cover of the Avengers that I picked up at that 7-Eleven that I had to obviously hide from my parents. But it was through the spinner rack and all these different you know encounters with comic books that I began to spend all my allowance money, all my lawn mowing money on in order to feed my desire to interact with these superheroes. Now, today, your desire to interact with these superheroes is a click away. You can summon a show or one of the many killer movies on Disney+, Plus, one of their Marvel shows. You can go to Hulu and you can, you know, watch uh, uh, d different superhero movies that they have on that platform. You can jump over to Amazon Prime. You can grab the boys and, and have, have a really great experience with a very a much more adult, a very much more kind of a Deadpool kind of kick-ass version of superheroes, and I mean kick-ass the comic book franchise uh, via the boys. Then there's the Invincible cartoon. HBO Max has got all your Warner Brothers, your DC, most of your Warner Brothers DC movies, cartoons. The experiences are everywhere. It's not like uh, my generation, and I dig it, and I like to compare and to contrast. My favorite thing is I love to take you, you know, back through the different portals of history as this business, as this comic book business changed so drastically, I mean, just absolutely drastically. In one of those instances, we're going to um, give a deeper analysis today to the giant game changer uh, that, that we've discussed here a couple of times before, but not in the manner that we're going to do it today. We're just going to pull back and look at Frank Miller's work on the dark Knight. And how Batman changed forever. Batman changed forever in 1986. Yes, we've we've covered Dark Knight in all manner of different episodes, including our most recent kind of uh, decade series where we picked out 1986 and celebrated celebrated it for all uh, of its of its glory. And and and, and of course, uh, you know. Uh, Dark Knight is part of that. Frank Miller's visionary work is part of that. But it gets it, it gets me thinking because again, we just had a Batman Day, and I just looked and and a year ago, a year ago, I did something on Batman Day too. Back when a year ago, at this time, DC published they literally published 15, 15 Batman books in one week, right before Batman Day. Batman Day is now a day. Batman Day was this past. I think it was the September seventeenth. You know, it's uh. It, it, it's the day that everybody gets excited and shares all their crazy, um, you know, excitement uh, uh, around around Batman. And and the fact of the matter is that, uh, I, you know, Batman was first published March 30th, 1939. I mean, holy crap, you know, by the time we had turned 2000, he, he was 61 years old. Okay, so now, what is he, 83? 
Is he 83 years old? I mean, this this dude, Batman has been around. He is one of the most long-standing, most amazing characters. So if you think that 1939 is Batman's debut when he comes into the consciousness of the public and then they, you know, continue to celebrate him, he he goes through all manner of different incarnations from black and white uh, films to cartoons to the Adam West television show, which we'll touch upon just ever so briefly. Because we have Alan Moore. No less than Alan Moore is going to weigh in on this today. I'm going to read from you directly from Alan Moore on how he saw Frank Miller's epic, visionary contribution to the legacy of Batman. We're going to share word for word. And I love nothing more than reading Alan Moore. If I was to read it in Alan Moore's voice, it would be hard to understand. So I will not be reading it in Alan Moore's voice. A couple of you guys have heard me do Alan Moore before. I don't. I do a pretty good Alan Moore. I'm not sure it's as good as my Todd, but it's pretty good. And uh, I'm going to share with you what Alan Moore thought of uh, Frank's contribution. And, and you got to realize when when Frank gets in there, I mean, I mean, when 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 Frank gets the, gets in there and 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 radically changes, uh, you know, the, the the this legacy of Batman. I mean. We're talking 39 to 49 to 59 to 69, 30, 79, 40. I mean, it was 47 years, like 47 years uh, into Batman's existence. Probably 46 when he started doing it. But when he radically altered, just absolutely radically altered uh, Batman for all time to follow. And it, I'm going to break it down. I'm going to give you 10 ways that Frank Miller altered Batman. But before we do that, I'm going to share with you that sometimes sometimes I keep stuff, you know, and I wonder, should I share it? Should I share it? Well, now we're, we're about two two plus years, two years, three months, two, two years, four months into this podcast. There is a really sweet, creative guy. He's a producer. His name is Adi Shankar. You may have, you're like, where, where, where have I heard that name? Where have I heard Adi Shankar before? Where have I heard Adi Shankar? Well, he uh, has been in the entertainment business for quite some time. And uh, he has produced all manner of uh, entertainment that you probably devoured. He's extremely uh, prolific, talented. As a producer, he has done 25 different items. I met Audie when we were dancing with the fact that the idea of doing a Youngblood movie about 12, 13 years ago. I went up to his offices in LA and I and I met with him. Uh, he produced the Power Rangers short film that 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 was that was like an R-rated version with a. Uh, uh, forget that really amazing director. I, I, I love this guy. He directs all the uh, Trent Taylor Swift uh, videos. Joseph Kahn. James Vanderbeek's in this. Katie Sackhoff. It's a great cast. If you ever get a chance to see that, or you, if you haven't, I think it's on YouTube, his uh, Power Rangers short. But uh, he produced Ryan Reynolds' uh, 2014 movie, The Voices. He produced Lone Survivor with Mark Wahlberg. He produced Broken City. He produced Dread. I know one of the movies that he is the most absolute uh, proudest of is is Dread, and the the Dread film starring uh, Carl Ur- Urban and Olivia Thirlby and Lena 
Heady, directed by Peter Travis, is one of his all-time, uh, you know, the, 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 one of the things that he's the most proudest of. He did Machine Gun Preacher. He did The Grey, Killing Them Softly. He has a huge uh, film resume. He then got into Castlevania, where he has produced 32 episodes of a very popular Netflix uh, anime, Castlevania. And most recently, you've seen him produce The Guardians of Justice, which is kind of a parody superhero film. Adi's a sweet guy. He has great energy. Uh, again, just, just listen to those movies. I mean, he's made movies with uh, Liam Neeson, Mark Wahlberg, Ryan Reynolds, uh, Carl Urban, some great sci-fi. The Grey is like my personal favorite of all the Liam Neeson films. Uh, just just love that movie to death. If you've never seen it, Liam Neeson, you know, in the Arctic against a, a pack of wolves. Terrifying. Awesome. Great movie. So Adi and I are having lunch at San Diego back in 2012. We are having lunch with Gina Carano. Uh, she has just been in the latest Fast and the Furious movie where she was featured alongside uh, The Rock and and uh, the entire cast, uh, Vin Diesel, everybody. She had a pretty sizable role in that film. If you haven't seen it, I'm not going to give anything away about her character, but it was fun. Uh, Gina was investigating. We were dancing with the fact of her doing an Evangeline film. And we had just done a giant signing. We had done an Evangeline cover uh, that we put on an Evangeline copy of number one and did a limited uh, run that we signed at the Image Comics booth. It was a ton of attention and success because Gina had come from the, you know, MME, you know, uh, MMA fighting world and had been a champion. And so she had an entire sports, you know, uh, fandom contingency behind her. And again, being in a Fast and the Furious movie is a pretty big deal. She had made a couple of uh, 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 other other films that she had uh, been in. One with Steven Soderbergh where, you know, she kicks the crap out of everybody from Channing Tatum to uh, to Magneto himself. And uh, the, 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 her, her, her star was definitely on the rise. I mean, look, since we met, obviously she went on to be, to, to be in Deadpool. I took her down and introduced her to Tim Miller. She saw the uh, brief three, four-minute footage that Tim had done prior to the movie getting greenlit. I'd like to think I kind of helped make that happen with her starring as Angel Dust. Uh, I did help make that happen. So so Gina then goes on to be in Deadpool. And then most recently, you guys saw her on two seasons of The Mandalorian. That's a huge sci-fi action movie resume just there with Fast and the Furious, Deadpool, and... Uh, the Mandalorian. So we are out to lunch with Adi Shankar following our signing. It's afternoon. We're, we're sitting there in the back bay uh, between the Marriott and the Hyatt. I'm sorry, the Marriott and the Hilton. And Adi, I've already known, you know, what a huge comic book fan he is because I had met with him a few years prior, as I said, on Youngblood. <clears throat> and Adi says, you know what, Rob? You know what the big problem for DC Comics is? He is saying this to me in, in 2012. Okay, you got to realize he is saying this to me in 2012. He says, uh, DC fans, uh, they they had their very best existence ever, their peak, their 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 comics gasm. He said they had their uh, peak DC experience between 1985 and 1986, and that's when DC peaked. Peaked absolutely, it peaked, and it's it's never going to get better than that, and they know it. And they've been trying to replicate it ever since, but everything comes up short. And I'm sitting here, 
you know, eating my ravioli. And I'm like, are, are you serious? And he is, he has locked into me as dead serious as he possibly can. Cause I like Adi. He's a really smart guy. Got, got, got a ton of uh, business savvy mixed in with his creative uh, instincts. He said, Rob, come on, look at it. Crisis on infinite earths. Greatest crossover of all, of crossover of all time. Marv Wolfman, George Perez transforms the DC universe. Does this incredible reshaping acclaimed, brilliant commercial, then it's followed by John, followed by John Byrne taking over Superman. Then Alan Moore on Watchmen, and 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 in between Crisis and the John Byrne Superman takeover, Frank Miller redefines Batman forever, forever. It's this ultimate, like those two calendar years just changed everything for DC. It's never going to get better. It never has been better, and they're living in the past all the time because they just want to go back. I was fairly skeptical a decade ago because I, I felt like what he was saying was so uh, just like uh, nuclear. It was like I saw like a nuclear cloud going off as he said it because I think fandom would radically, you know, uh, snap back at that or some some aspect of DC fandom. But when you sit back and you casually absorb what he's saying, you're not going to beat Watchmen. You're not going to be Dark Knight and you're not going to be Crisis. I mean, how many, like literally since then, they keep putting Crisis in the title of crossovers and it's so uh, it, it, it it's a terrible disservice to the one true crisis and you guys know what I'm talking about if you were there in 1985 and you got all 12 issues of that seminal transformational amazing you know multiverse collapse you know crisis literally a crisis by two of the biggest names in comics Marvel Wolfman and George Perez you sit there and you go man that is a lot that 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 is that is a ton of acclaimed work happening all at one time. Now you're going to go, but, but Life of X-Men was still the number one book in 85 and 80. It was, absolutely it was. Marvel, uh, even in their kind of downtime, could rule the charts. They had name recognition. We've gone over this many times on the show. And they will tell you, if you get a Marvel executive, uh, uh, you know, just feeling it, whether it's through just confidence of walking off the con floor or some of them you get an, enough drink in them they'll just start going we got too many families we got too many families for them to compete i mean come on we got the spider family we got the avengers family we got the x family and there's families inside of families there's the wolverine family inside the x-men family there's the deadpool family inside the x-men family there's the venom family inside the spider-man family there's the miles morales spider-man 2099 family inside the spider-man and we haven't even gotten to like the classic marvel stuff like let's put fantastic four classic marvel label he goes then we got our creepy you know Monsters line, Ghost Rider, and and he just starts, you know, going down. And you're like, man, they do have a lot of families. And and and, and for a period of time, we had the Ultimate line. We have the Ultimate line. Marvel, even in the period that I was as disengaged as I would ever be with Marvel Comics as a buyer, as a buyer, the amount of money that I earned had not changed. It had actually increased, but my my discretionary income was going more towards. DC Comics, and during that period, it was Camelot 3000, it was Legion of Superheroes, it was Batman and the Outsiders, it was uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths, it was George Perez when he did Titans, it was John Byrne's Superman and Action Comics, because he did both of them, I didn't buy all the Superman relaunches, I just bought his, it was Alan Moore's Watchmen, I mean, 
DC was trying harder, working harder, and it showed and it paid off. But I, 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 I'm bringing this up today because after all this time, I look back and I see what is definitely, um, I mean, let's be honest, just shy of what would be somewhere, whatever downgrade it is from true dumpster fire or true shit show. Uh, DC has been it in the last several years. It's been spiraling uh, almost seemingly since the pandemic. And I believe Batman had a peak in the pandemic. James Tinian, also called James IV, and uh, Jorge Jimenez put together this incredible run in uh, late 2020. And that's where you got the new version of, uh, of, of Harley Quinn, who's, you know, whose name, Punchline, that's it, Punchline. Punchline, my invisible producer just whispered into my ear and there is no invisible producer. I'm talking about the wall I'm staring directly into uh, beyond this mic. Punchline and all these other cool characters. It was like uh, a bunch of new new faces were exciting and Jorge Jimenez is an incredible talent. I I think he's the most exciting, most diverse, most truly uh, talented of any of the guys drawing comics in the last 20 years. He he has a myriad of styles and renderings and applications. His storytelling, his page design, he's, he's fantastic. And part of that, um, that book just became, you know, must buy. And then it died. James IV left overnight and, and uh, Jimenez took a vacation and I haven't been back to revisit it. But it was, it was really exciting me with the fresh new faces. But the core of it all, the Batman, the Bruce Wayne of it all, is still being represented by what Frank Miller did. So I used the Adi Shankar as our, as our beginning opening topic. Did DC Comics peak in 1985-1986? Two amazing calendar years that created some of the most engaging, exciting storylines, interpretations, art, you know comic series that they've ever done. And I think they've been trying to get back there ever since. And again, you you guys, you've got the two giant pillars of Dark Knight and Watchmen. But what is it exactly about Dark Knight? As as as, as Batman Day was was occurring and people shared their Batman art or their favorite Batman stuff, uh you you guys you guys know I have been very honest. I don't I don't try and hide the fact that I'm not a Batman guy. I believe there's an episode called The Numbers. I think there's maybe a couple episodes, if you go back to my library over the last year, year and a half, a couple episodes called The Numbers. I got a hold of sales figures. I use those sales figures to back up the data that I've shared with you guys in the past that goes, I mean, completely, I mean, it's 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 numbers and data. It is hard facts and figures that shows you that Batman had fallen off, fallen off terribly in sales, had actually since the mid-70s been just falling. And as I've said, prior to Dark Knight, setting the table for what we're about to do. And it's going to be really great. Ten ways, ten ways Batman was transformed by Frank Miller. Permanently, I might add. But but also really imaginative approaches. It's not just, hey man, he drew the coolest uh, Batman. Uh, in, in, in preparing for this and looking over all of the interpretations of Batman over the last 20 years, I'm going to tell you the one that stands out to me the most. The one that I think is the slickest, the most visceral, uh, the most detailed, the best, the most commercial to me is, I believe, Dave Finch. Dave Finch has done a lot of Batman. I think that guy, he may even tell you, I, I got to believe 60% of his uh, commissions have got to be Batman. They've got to be Batman. I mean, he, he he does so much Batman. 
And uh, his tenure on Batman, the stories were not terribly imaginative, but the art was fantastic. Uh, look at, uh, he's had a, a number of guys who've done kind of different versions. I would say Jason Fabok does a Dave Finch style uh, Batman. I mean, Dave is, uh, his, his work is very resonant. It is very um, influential. And, you know, I just look at his Batman as, to me, he draws the most uh, commercial, uh, appealing, and and his Batman is extremely popular. He's had multiple uh, runs on the book because the fans keep demanding him to come back. Oh, man, he even paints Batman. His paintings, some, so he did some of his covers, but he does some of his commissions. I mean, go down the, the Dave Finch Batman like hole, and you'll be like, oh, my gosh, this, this guy, I mean, literally, great Batman face, great Batman, you know, uh, figure, the rendering, the posing, the, you know, everybody does Batman on a, gar, on a gargoyle. I think, I think Dave's is, is by far the best. Um, anyway, and the Dave comics, he, he, his, his last run, I believe had him, you know, facing off with Bane and it was, it was great. It was really maybe Tom, I think Tom King wrote it. It was really fantastic. But again, his, his Batman reflects, uh, Frank's thick, uh, a lot of wrinkles on the suit uh, just, a, just a certain approach to Batman that no one was doing up until Frank did it. Prior to Frank, as I was going to say, setting the table, Batman had World's Finest. He had Batman Family. He had Batman. He had Detective Comics. He had uh, Brave and the Bold. There's five. Just off the top of my head, five comics that starred Batman. Prior to Dark Knight, he was down to two. You know, they had canceled World's Finest. They had canceled Brave and the Bold. It was Detective, and it was Batman. The excitement around Dark Knight would garner the press of Rolling Stones, New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, um, the Village Voice. Everybody and their mother stood in line to review Batman and Dark Knight and said it was changed. It was changed forever. It was no longer the Adam West Batman. No less, and I've covered this also in other podcasts than Stephen King. Yes, Stephen King of Carrie, of Cujo, of The Stand, of It. I mean, the list goes on and on and on of The Shining. I mean, Stephen King, the greatest, maybe the greatest fiction storyteller of all time. Clearly, they put him in the horror category and he has no equal whatsoever, period. He wrote in, uh, I believe it was Detective 600, how Frank Miller saved Batman from irrelevancy, that Batman was going the way of Lone Ranger, of the Phantom, of the Shadow, and Tarzan. And he was correct. The sales were moving away from Batman. His peak had faded, uh, which which coincided with his highest sales were alongside when the Adam West Batman show was all the rage. A lot of this stuff is repetitive. I've shared a ton of this stuff with you guys before. Today, I am going to share with you 10 basic premises because it's more than the layouts and the page design, which were overtly influenced by, if you listen to one of my recent episodes where I sing the praises of a certain Howard Chaikin and his American flag, that was the art, the artistic, the graphic, the page layout and design kind of blueprint for Dark Knight. Frank altered the way he told stories, but he didn't, American flag didn't, didn't change the way Frank drew. It's the way that he thought out a page, the way he presented pages. And trust me, that's extremely important. We've covered that here before. The way your eye moves through a page is so important as to how you will, you will digest it and enjoy it. But it is the imagination that Frank Miller brought. It is the application. It is it, He stood back and he gave 10 
brand new aspects that had not been previously revealed of Batman and it blew everyone away. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to share with you what Alan Moore, one of the most acclaimed writer of all time, another guy in the, in the Stephen King category, okay? You don't get V for Vendetta and, and you don't get, you know, Watchmen and the, you know, uh, all of the other seminal works, the, the, the critically acclaimed Swamp Thing work, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. His, he won two, two years in a row. He won the the highest honor the in, in, that, that, that the British comic book world can bestow on comic books for my series Supreme. He did three years on Supreme. He won he won awards for best comic series, best writer, both years. I'm gonna share with you exactly how Alan Moore views Frank's work on the Dark Knight and, and, and let you decide for yourself. So in November nineteen eighty six, after Dark Knight had passed, DC released this beautiful hardcover album edition, like a European album, hardcover, collecting Dark Knight, and in it, the foreword is by none other than, yes, you guessed it, Mr. Watchman, Mr. Swamp Thing, Mr. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Mr. Supreme, Mr. V for Vendetta himself, Alan Moore. I'm going to read it to you, because why not give it to you straight the exact way that I experienced it? The Mark of Batman. As anyone involved in fiction and its crafting over the past 15 or so years would be delighted to tell you, heroes are starting to become rather a problem. They aren't what they used to be. Or rather, they are, and therein lies the heart of the difficulty. The word about us has the world about us has changed and is continually changing at an ever-accelerating pace. So have we. With the increase in media coverage and information technology, we see more of the world comprehend its working a little more clearly. And as a result, our perception of ourselves and the society surrounding us has been modified. Consequently, we begin to make different demands upon the art and the culture that is meant to reflect the constantly shifting landscape we find ourselves in. We demand new themes, new insights, new dramatic situations. We demand new heroes. The fictional heroes of the past, while still retaining all of their charm and power and magic have had some of their credibility stripped away forever as a result of the new sophistication of the audience. With the benefit of hindsight and a greater understanding of anthropoid, anthropoid, anthropoid sorry, <laughs> behavioral patterns, science fiction author Philip Jose Farmer was able to demonstrate quite credibly that the young Tarzan would almost certainly have indulged in sexual experiment, sexual experimentation with champion... Um, <laughs> I'm going to read this again. That the young Tarzan would almost certainly have indulged in sexual experimentation with chimpanzees. And that he would just as certainly have had none of the aversion to eating human flesh that Edgar Rice Burroughs attributed to him. Yes, that is the wildest statement you're going to read in this Dark Knight uh, introduction by Alan Moore. I just have to kind of inject that because it, it caught me by surprise when I reread it earlier today. Which is probably why I stumbled over it. Let's just read it again. The young Tarzan would almost certainly have indulged in sexual experimentation with chimpanzees and that he would just as certainly have had none of the aversion to eating human flesh that Edgar Rice Burroughs attributed to him. As our political and social consciousness continues to evolve, Alan Quartermain, the fictional uh, Alan Quartermain who, who some believe Indiana Jones uh, was based on, and he depicts Alan Quartermain years later now, uh, some, some sidebar 
Interestingly enough, as he invokes Alan Quartermain, Alan Quartermain will be a featured character in Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary uh, Gentlemen. So, so little, 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 uh, you know, suffixes and prefixes and sidebars as I read this to you. Okay, he says. Uh, as our political and social consciousness continues to evolve, Alan Quartermain stands revealed as just another white imperialist out to exploit the natives. And we begin to see that the overriding factor in James Bond's psychological makeup is his utter hatred and contempt for women. Whether most of us would prefer to enjoy the above-mentioned gentleman's adventures without spoiling things by considering the social implications is beside the point. The fact remains that we have changed along with our society, and that we are such characters created today, and I'm sorry, and that were such characters created today, they, they would be somehow subject to the most extreme suspicion and criticism. So unless they are somehow to do, so unless they are to somehow do without superheroes altogether, how are the creators of fiction to go about redefining their legends to suit the contemporary climate? The fields of cinema and literature have to some extent been able to tackle the problem in a mature and intelligent fashion, perhaps by virtue of having a mature and intelligent audience capable of appreciating and supporting such a response. The field of comic books, seen since its inception as a juvenile medium in which any interaction of adult theme, um, interjection of adult themes and subject matter are likely to be met with howls of outrage and the threat of actual actuality of censorship has not been so fortunate, whereas in novels and movies we have been presented with such concepts as the anti-hero or the classical hero reinterpreted as in a contemporary manner. Comic books have largely had to plod along with the same old muscle-bound oafs, spouting the same old muscle-bound platitudes without attempting to dis um, while attempting to dismember each other. As the naivete as the naivete of the characters and the absurdity of their situations become increasingly embarrassing and an anachronistic to modern eyes, so does the problem become more compounded and intractable. Left floundering in the wake of other media, how are comic books to reinterpret their traditional icons so as to interest an audience growing progressively further away from them? Obviously, the problem becomes one that can only be solved by people who understand the dilemma and further to that, have an equal understanding of heroes and what makes them tick. Whoa, what a, what a buildup here. And here comes a sentence, which brings me to Frank Miller and to Dark Knight. In deciding to apply his style and sensibilities to the Batman, Frank Miller has come up with a solution to the difficulties outlined above that is as impressive and elegant as any that I've ever seen. More strikingly still, he has managed to do it while handle, handling a character who, in the view of the wider public, that exists beyond the relatively, relatively tiny confines of the comic audience, sums up more than any other the essential silliness of the comic book hero. Whatever changes may have been wrought in the comic books themselves, the image of Batman most permanently transfixed in the mind of the general populace is that of Adam West delivering outrageously straight-faced camp dialogue while walking up a wall, thanks to the benefit of stupendous special effects and a camera turned on its side. To land such a subject credibility in the eyes of an audience not necessarily enamored of superheroes and their trappings is no inconsiderable feat and it would perhaps be appropriate to look a little more closely here at what exactly it is that Frank Miller has done. I hope Frank Miller will forgive me for calling him Miller from here on out. It seems so brusque and rude 
and I would certainly never do it to his face, but somehow it's just sort of the thing you call people you know quite well when writing introductions for their books. He has taken a character whose every trivial and incidental detail is graven in stone on the hearts and minds of the comic fans that make up his audience and managed to dramatically redefine the character without contradicting one jot of the character's mythology. Yes, Batman is still Bruce Wayne, Alfred is still his butler, and the Commissioner Gordon is still Chief of Police, albeit just barely. There is still a young sidekick named Robin, along with a Batmobile, a Batcave, and a utility belt. The Joker, Two-Face, and the Catwoman are still in evidence amongst the roster of villains. Everything is exactly the same except for the fact that it is all completely different. Gotham City, a place which during the comic book stories of the 40s and 50s seemed to be an extended urban playground stuffed with giant typewriters and other gargantuan props, became something much grimmer in Frank Miller's hands. A dark and unfriendly city in decay, populated by rabid and sociopathic street gangs. It comes to resemble more closely... The urban masses, which may very well exist in our own uncomfortably near future. The Batman himself taking account of our current perception of vigilantes as a social force in the wake of Bernie Getz is seen as a near fascist and a dangerous fanatic by the media while concerned psychiatrists plead for the release of a homicidal joker upon strictly humanitarian grounds. The values of the world we see are no longer defined in the clear, bright, primary colors of the conventional comic book but in the more subtle and ambiguous tones supplied by Lynn Varley's gorgeous palette and sublime sensibilities. The most immediate and overpowering difference is obviously in the portrayal of both the Batman and Bruce Wayne, the man beneath the mask. Depicted over the years as alternately a concerned do-gooder and a revenge-driven psychopath, the character as presented here manages to bridge both of those interpretations quite easily while integrating them into a much larger and more persuasively realized personality. Every subtlety of expression, every nuance of body language serves to demonstrate that this Batman has finally become where he should have always been. He is a legend. The importance of myth and legend as a subtext to Dark Knight can't really be overstated, shining as it does from every page. The familiar Batman origin sequence with the tiny bat fluttering in through an open window to inspire amusing Bruce Wayne becomes something far more religious and apocalyptic under Miller's handling. The bat itself transformed into a gigantic and ominous chimera straight out of the darkest European fables. The later scenes of the Batman on horseback evoking everything from the chivalry of the round table to the arrival in town of Clint Eastwood serve to further demonstrate this mythical quality as does Miller's startling portrayal of Batman's old acquaintance, Superman. The Superman we see here is an earthbound god whose presence is announced only by the wind of his passing or the destruction left in his wake. At the same time, his doubtful passion as an agent of the United States government. I'm sorry, at the same time, his doubtful position as an agent of the United States government manages to treat an incredible situation realistically and to seamlessly wed the stuff of legend to the stuff of 20th century reality. Beyond the imagery themes and essential romance of the Dark Knight, Miller has always managed to shape has also managed to shape the Batman into a true legend by introducing the element without which all true legends are incomplete and yet which for some reason hardly seems to exist in the world depicted in the average comic book and that element is time. All our best and oldest legends recognize that time passes and that people grow old and they die. The legend of Robin Hood would not be complete without the final blind arrow shot to determine the site of his grave. The Norse legends would lose much of their power were it not for the knowledge of an eventual Ragnarok, as would the story of Davy Crockett without the existence of an Alamo. In comic books, however, given the commercial fact that the given character will still have to sell 
to a given audience in 10 years' time, these elements are missing. The characters remain in the perpetual limbo of their mid to late 20s, and the presence of death in their world is as best a temporary and reversible phenomenon. With Dark Knight, time has come to the Batman, and the capstone that makes legends what they are has finally been fitted. In his engrossing story of a great man's final and greatest battle, Miller has managed to create something radiant, which would hopefully should hopefully illuminate things for the rest of the comic book field, casting a new light upon the problems which face all of us working within the industry and perhaps even guiding us towards some fresh solutions. For those of you who've already eagerly consumed Dark Knight and its soft cover version, rest assured that in your hands you hold one of the few genuine comic book landmarks worthy of a lavish and more durable presentation. For the rest of you who are about to enter entirely new territory, I can only express my extreme envy for you you are about to encounter a new level of comic book storytelling, a new world with new pleasures and new pains. A new hero. Alan Moore, Northampton, 1986. Huzzah! That, that's an introduction. Written by one of the all-time greats. He touches along, he touches on and along the themes of so much that I'm going to lay out to you how Batman was changed forever following Frank's visionary work on the character. We are a culture that loves lists. We love lists. So I figured, I figured the best way to deal with this is just write down a list. Because today's audience, and, re, and really uh, the, the thing that, the way that you guys uh, are so kind and really, I'm going to use the word bless, bless me. You guys come on my whatnot uh, live streams. I, there's an app called whatnot. I do, uh, uh, it's a kick-ass collectible app that that allows you to do transactions for I mean everything from sneakers to collectible trading card games to sports cards to sports memorabilia to comic books that's where you'll find me toys I'll be there too Funkos I'm also in that department uh, you interact with different retailers creators like myself and uh, but it's a live stream so you're talking back to the people the entire time it's so great it's so much fun we've had a blast on on whatnot and and oftentimes everyone is a lot of people uh, because I've been promoting whatnot here on the show, they found me on the stream and said, "Hey, I, I discovered whatnot because you guys mentioned it." And then they say, "We we love your podcast and and thank you for you know going to great lengths to educate us." And look at it. At, at, I'm going to be 55 in here in in, in just a couple of weeks, and uh, inside two weeks I'll be 55. Love it. Love being old old Rob. That this is actually going to lead us into the the first of the most popular of the tropes that that Frank established, but. I am passionate about sharing with you. I, a great educator just shows you the knowledge and where to find it. I don't shape a lot of this knowledge. It's there. I grab it. It's, it may be in an Amazing Heroes interview. It may be in a uh, comics journal interview. It may be in a comics interview magazine. It may be in the comic scene. I saved all of my 80s, 70s, 90s, uh, you know, interview magazines, the fanzines that really were so, so... Uh, prominent during comic collecting, especially in the er- in the early days of the direct market. But it was the what it was what put us in contact. It was the version of whatnot that was available to us. We didn't have live stream. We didn't have cell phones. There were no computers in 1980. That that, that no, no home computers. Not there were computers for like you know businesses and for certainly the defense department. But um, the 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 Apple computer was just around the corner. And then even then, the internet and the chat rooms and all that stuff wouldn't hit and really take off until the mid-90s. 
So fanzines, interviews with, with our favorite creators, that's how we were interacting. And they, the most, and, and I bought each and every one I could. I love, I wanted to get in the minds of my favorite creators. And, I, and then I've kept them, I've held on to them. So I share them with you guys as often as I can. And I put you inside their minds, what they were thinking in 1980, 1986, 1990, 1992, so on and so forth. Uh, and, and I, I appreciate the fact that you guys appreciate me sharing that, that I want to make you smarter. I want to put you in my chair when I was reading interviews with John Byrne and Chris Claremont and Frank Miller and Walt Simonson and Howard Shaken and how they were blowing my mind and how they were sharing their inspirations because it inspired me. It made me want to draw and write. And hopefully this podcast is a little of the same. It gives you a glimpse behind the curtain as well as uh, inspires you. The reason I'm bringing this up is today, the reason I'm really leaning into Batman is a lot of people just think the Batman that they're getting today, month in, month out, 15 titles a month from DC still. I, I mean, there's all manner of, D, of Batman. Uh, even my retailers are now going, this is too much for us to bear. We don't have the fan base to push all these. But regardless, it's the best thing that DC has to offer, so they offer it the most. But the Batman that you get now did not exist prior to 1986. He did not. He was very much in a superhero vein, uh, modeled along the lines of the way that you would get him on his CBS Batman Saturday morning cartoon or the Super Friends, where he appeared alongside Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, Green Lantern, and so many others. He was in Brave and the Bold. He would team up. He would time travel. He would, you know, be with the Shining Knight. He would be in World War II. He would be battling monsters. You know, he'd be, he'd be with the Legion of Superheroes in the 30th century. He was very much an audience surrogate. He had his utility belt. He had his stuff, his Batmobile. He had his cave. He had all the basic tenants. Just like Adam, I'm sorry, just like Alan Moore said. Uh, it'd be great if this was actually, that introduction was actually written by Adam Moore. But I look close to it. It was an L. Alan Moore. Northampton, 1986, baby. Alan Moore, the dimes that he was dropping in that intro. He said, it's all the same. It's just completely different. And that's exactly what Frank did. But nowadays, we just kind of take it for granted that the world that Frank gave us, the architect of all of this, is something that we overlook. He immediately followed up Dark Knight with Batman Year One and went further into redefining. I've told you, I love The Long Halloween and Dark Victory, both by Loeb and Sale. And that was Jeff Loeb securing for the first time since Batman Year One, which was almost a decade, getting the green light that he could play in the Year One universe that Frank established. Paul Levitz, the editor-in-chief at the time, said, Jeff, we'll let you we'll let you do this. Nobody has been allowed to work in Frank Miller's playground yet, but we'll let you. And, uh, and so I'm going to establish. So we're going to go number one. What is the biggest change? What is the biggest new concept? Because Dark Knight is defined by its imagination. It's the ideas, the approach, the reasoning, some of the new narrative history that he gave Batman that changed the way fans looked at him. Like Alan Moore said, people who only saw him as Adam West and Jokey. Because when you're on TV and the Adam West Batman never went off the air, just so you understand this, it's now harder to find. But certainly all throughout the 80s and the late 70s, those reruns were on twice a day, every day, Monday through Sunday. Some network, it was either Channel 5 or on the weekends, Channel 13, where I was growing up. But come on, you guys who are in your 40s and your 50s, you know Batman with uh, Adam West and Burt Ward as Robin was everywhere. Um, 
they, they were half-hour episodes. They were always buttressed up together. You'd get a, a block of them, sometimes a block of four episodes from 5 to 7 p.m., just maybe some from 5 to 6 p.m., but they were everywhere. They never went out, and some of that licensing maintained. So the Adam West Batman hadn't gone anywhere. It was on lunch pails. It was still on uh, school supplies. It was still being licensed because it never went off the air. Just like, you know, you may have never seen the Brady Bunch. I only remember the last, like, two seasons of the Brady Bunch in real time, watching it week to week. But by then, they had already stripped it. And by stripped it, I mean syndicated it. That's what they call syndication stripping, for some of you who, who may not be aware of that term. They had stripped it Monday through Friday. Brady Bunch was twice a day in the afternoons. So I could see the earlier seasons before I was even born. Or the years that I was born. Uh, so Batman hadn't gone away, and the public... J- still saw him and there was no 1989 Michael Keaton movie even on the drawing board yet that would all change with the critical acclaim from Rolling Stone Wall Street Journal the Village Voice the LA Times the New York Times the the people who fawned over Dark Knight but here's some of the new imaginative things that he brought and I'm going to start with and I think it's maybe one of the most powerful there's a lot of competition for what is the most resonant thing that Frank brought but certainly the old man hero trope the old hero, retired, grizzled, uh, semi out of shape, you know, gone from public view, was established first, foremost, biggest, brightest here. Okay, you go, oh, but the Justice Society, okay, they'd been around. They did nothing to move the needle, okay? There was certainly an old Superman and an old Green Lantern, and they were treated like geriatrics. And they were also byproducts of a different world. In, in the in the multiverse of DC Comics growing up, they lived on Earth 2 and they got in a transporter and met up with the Justice League once a year and that's how I met them. And then they got their own series. And again, they all had gray hair and they'd acknowledge that they were old. Oh, I'm, I'm Jay Garrick. I'm the old Flash. I'm the old, you know, uh, Green Lantern. I'm the old Superman. I have gray on the temples of my hair. I'm a little thicker. I'm a little stouter. So that idea was there. But the idea of the existing hero that you totally dug, that you are a huge fan of, and him going away mysteriously, either escaping the public eye or possibly the belief that they had died, it roared into the consciousness with uh, Bruce Wayne, who it was implied had died because Robin had died, Jason Todd, someone had died, a Robin had died. He didn't protect that person. He took the guilt. He 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 completely backed off. Uh, no one had seen Bruce Wayne at the open of Dark Knight Strikes or the or Dark Knight Returns, the, the seminal Frank Miller classic, 1986, The Dark Knight. No one in, in the premise of his story. Bruce Wayne was gone. His rose gallery was, again, uh, uh, locked up. You know, you, you started hearing... The, the calls, as Alan Moore refers to in his introduction, for Joker to be released on humanitarian reasons. Come on, we can't treat people with me- mental you know ailments and, 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 and uh, handicaps the way that we treat them. You know, put them back on the street. Really crazy reflections of, of what was going on in the late 80s. But Bruce Wayne with a mustache, receding hairline, uh, a, a suit walking through the streets of Gotham City, you know, pondering his own existence in misery was the template that everything else would follow. You don't get old man Logan from Mark Miller, who also brings old man Hawkeye along for the ride. Uh, Alex Ross loved this so much. He, 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 he created two uh, or three kind of of the same trope 
in 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 Kingdom Come, he flat out goes straight back into a like old Batman. He dives into those same waters. He interacts him with. I mean, like I was like, wait, Kingdom Come is kind of like they're doing old Batman exactly like Frank did old Batman, and and he has, you know, armor just like just like Frank gave him. That's another trope we'll get to. He then does. Uh, uh, Alex does it again in Earth X. Even older versions of the superheroes, old Peter Parker, old um, Wolverine, which he has a really fun time making this version because he didn't. Alex told me he was not a Wolverine fan, so his you know little joke was that he made his uh, Wolverine look like Danny DeVito, uh, a, a big gut, short looks. Ex- the, the reference was Danny DeVito. Um, or uh, or or that the the Who Framed Roger Rabbit actor, but it, it's somewhere between both of those uh, uh, actors lie, lies lies you know Alex's depiction. But Alec went on to Old Man Captain America. You know, um, I in, in Heroes Reborn, I I took the idea that Steve Rogers had vanished since World War II and had been reawakened. The, the bottom line, he couldn't be an old man because the super serum was constantly reju- rejuvenating him. And that he could know he could not grow old. He didn't need to be in an ice cube. Is is is, is what I proposed. That the the previous reason that he didn't grow old was because he had missed all these years because he was you know encased in in ice. So he was in this this stasis. I put forth that the science alone would de-age him. He would and, and he wouldn't age. So you wouldn't even get to Chris Evans being an old man in at the end of Endgame in in my version of of of, of the Heroes Reborn. Steve Rogers, because the, the technology, the, the serum itself would, would, would prevent him from aging. But uh, Kari Andrews, uh, early 2000s, did an old man Spider-Man, did, did, did a Dark Knight version of Spider-Man. Peter Parker retired. Obviously, probably the most famous of all of the ones that I just mentioned. I mean, obviously, um, uh, Kingdom Come was, was really popular. The Alex Ross uh, uh, example I, I gave, Earth X, was really popular, as was... Uh, as was Astro City, which Alex Ross did with Kurt Busiek, which which depicted again older characters. But uh, you know, you 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 in the Watchmen, the Watchmen, Dark Knight got there first. Whatever you want to say, Dark Knight got there first. The old heroes, the entire the entire Watchmen team is this old old heroes trope. Uh, recently, this last summer, the last two years. We have um, rocked to what was the best-selling comic of the last two years, which was The Last Ronin. It was the Dark Knight version of the Turtles. Kevin Eastman gave us the older Turtles in a dystopian future, aged. Three of them are die, have died. One is, al- is alive. I won't blow the story prior to that, but that is the old hero trope. So between Old Man Logan, Old Man Hawkeye, Old Man Turtles, you know, uh, all of the old characters in Kingdom Come, all of the old the old Captain America in in Earth X, along with old Peter Parker, Kari, Andro, Kari Andrews, old Spider Man. You, you you get what I'm going with this. You can keep going. You can keep going. Where did it all start? Where did it become the thing? Right here, Dark Knight, the old hero, the old gunslinger. Okay, Clint, East, Clint Eastwood went out and won an Oscar for Unforgiven, which is the cowboy version of this. This was the first time it had been on the level of commercial success that this concept that, that I had I had encountered it. 
and it hit comics like a tsunami, like a tidal wave, and then there was no looking back. The old superhero trope, the fallen hero who's been either ashamed or um, you know willfully retired, uh, faked his death, and now comes back grizzled and puts on the, the costume again to, to exact. Again, it, as, as recently as right now, it happened with the Turtles. Old man superhero trope hit the Turtles. The Turtles became the top. There is currently a tr- this version of that trope that I have pitched to someone that I hope to do in a couple of years. It, I won't be available to do it for a couple of years, for, and, and that character won't be available to do it with for a couple of years. But I have put my notice in because everyone loves this, the old man hero trope. I mean, think of old man Logan. You don't get Hugh Jackman in his greatest performance ever as Logan based on loosely based on Mark Miller's old man Logan without Dark Knight getting there first, Dining out on that first, okay? Huge, huge visionary concept that got everybody's wheels turning. The next trope. Very, very simply, you didn't see bad armor. You didn't see bad armor until you saw it like you saw it on Bruce Wayne as basically armored Batman, which emerges to battle, you know, the the government-serving Superman who they had despised. They being uh, uh, Bruce and his buddies. Because also, within Dark Knight, you get Old Man Green Arrow, who's missing a limb. And that's also another trope that I'm going to get to, but like the damaged superhero, the physically damaged superhero, which is another trope. There's Old Man, and then there's Damaged. And Frank got to both of them in the same series. Like this guy, again, should, 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 should we retire the word visionary for everybody else and just hang it on Frank? Because what I'm getting to is maybe your dude that you really like, he did a really fun Batman run and no one wants to not make that run, but it is not in any way, shape, or form equivalent to what Frank Miller did when he redefined Batman for the ages. The Batman armor. No one ever, no one had ever seen that before. Holy crap. In real time, we've been reading, we've been reading. There's a trope that we're going to get to in a minute. That, that that was enough to carry for a couple issues. And then, what? Batman has a suit of armor? And he can take on Superman in it? And it showed the genius. The genius that our billionaire DC, our DC billionaire was just as canny. Our DC billionaire inventor was just as canny as our billionaire Marvel inventor, Tony Stark. And he had created basically a bat armor that was the equivalent in terms of threat, consequence, danger of anything that Iron Man had cooked up. And with, incre- I mean, I was always trained. I mean, I didn't even see, I saw Christopher Reeve, his version of Superman spin around the world and turn it back in time. Which is a kid I was thrilled by. I've heard people who have issue with that. I'm like, you weren't nine years, you weren't 10 years old when you saw it because that came out a year after Star Wars. You weren't 10. You don't even know. So Superman could literally move and affect planets and their trajectory. And here is Batman putting his metal boot, his armored boot in his mouth, knocking him down repeatedly, punching him viciously until Superman is overwhelmed. Well, we saw this come to life several times in the cartoons they got to it, but Zack Snyder put, you know, the bad armor exactly like it walked off the page on Ben Affleck in Batman versus Superman, which is to me the highlight of the entire movie is, is Ben getting in the Batman armor and the Dark Knight that sequence walking, I mean, completely walking off the page into cinematic life. The bat armor. I've seen bat armor since. Everybody since decides, hey man, 
I'm gonna I'm gonna give him bad armor. And they tweak the design a little. They make it sharp. They make it bigger. Some people make it ten feet tall. It it didn't exist before before Bruce did it. Not in this way. And for those of you guys who want to go get me some giant, you know, ten foot robot that Bruce Bruce is sitting in 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 the cockpit of through a you know like 50s, 60s sci-fi vision of Robbie the robot. Uh, that that's not what I'm talking about. Batman shifted from his latex gear into armor and kicked Superman's ass. And ever since then, there's been armor, armor, armor. Let's just keep on this because, you know, it's the, it's the next natural trope. The Batmobile. Uh, in issue two of The Dark Knight, when he has to uh, deal with this, the threat of another trope, uh, Bruce pulls out the Batmobile, which we see is a tank. Never seen the Batmobile uh, uh, de- de- depicted as a tank. A freaking tank with a giant turret. Uh, I mean, it, it, whoa, my mouth was on the floor in 1986 when I am 18, 19 years old grabbing this going, what is going on? What? Wow. I mean, that is a version of the Batmobile. Damn it, I'm going to have to open those pages to that right now. It's right in my lap. I cannot not. Oh. <laughs> He rolls it out. Mutants surrender now or be destroyed. He says right here, the Batmobile. That's what the Batmobile. That's what you called it, Dick. Thinking of Dick Grayson. Kind of a name I would have come up with. I've modified her during some nasty riots fight 15 years ago. The only thing I know of that can cut through her hide isn't from this planet. Boosh douche. Direct reference to Mr. Superman. The mutants had hand grenades. They used rocket launchers, something that bounces off the hull. Something bounces off the hull that must have come from a bazooka. They do each other a lot of damage. This giant tank. A tank isn't even giving it the proper... It is a super tank. And again, Zack Snyder gives us a version of this at the end of his Justice League uh, Snyder cut. Uh, and, and you see how enormous it is. Batman is standing on it, and it's like two stories tall. And it is at that moment that you go, this is the Frank Miller Batmobile come to life from, you know, uh, Frank Miller's vision. On screen, Christian Bale, his Batmobile, they tried to go there with kind of the idea of this super tough car, you know, maybe like a a, a Ford super truck version um, without the, the flatbed, but a, a tougher version and lower to the ground and with tank tread. Uh, and then recently Pattinson had his sweet Mustang and everybody's liked each of them, but come on, nobody! That the Batmobile as a tank introduced here. I mean, Frank inside this this from within the gears looking through at at him. Um, the gun turret kind of bends down towards the sons of the Batman to blow him away. This is just, I mean that 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 paragraph nails it all. I modified her dur- during <laughs> dur- I modified her during some riots 15 years ago. The only thing I know of that can cut through the hot, her hide isn't from this planet. Trope number three, the Batmobile as a tank. Others would follow, and it's like, well, I'll draw it like two inches bigger than Frank did. You're never going to be the guy that got there first. There's a reason the rest of you are playing for number two, okay? And again, it's not because... Uh, he draw you. Uh, he didn't draw you a Batman that looked like Wolverine. Okay, 
Frank's art is is at some point it's 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 not always slick. It's sometimes it's underground. And I'm going to speak to that point. There was a time during the 90s that I would share some phone calls with Frank Miller. He knew how much I completely, you know, worshipped at his altar even back then when I was doing uh, Youngblood in the middle of all my Extreme Studios titles. Uh, and I, I was talking to him one night and I said, you know, Frank, how, you know, tell me again, how'd you do it? How'd you break out? He said, well, Rob, and this is the one, and I told it to everybody in my studio the next day, Dan Franger, Marat, Eric Stevenson, Matt Hawkins, everybody, Larry Martyr. I said, oh my gosh, he was so bold. He's like, Rob, you know, I wasn't a pretty guy. I wasn't, a, my, I didn't have a pretty line. I didn't have a, I didn't draw pretty people, you know. Uh, I had to deal with guys like John Byrne who were doing the pretty stuff. And he says, you know, you, you, you couldn't have the same thing with Jim Lee. Not as extreme as, 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 as my approach compared to to John, but it's, you know, I had John Byrne. Nobody drew more slick, more polished, more pretty. And I'm like, well, I can't compete with that. So I'm going to find my own gear. And I just went about to make my stuff bolder, louder, cruder. And I'm like, uh, yeah. And, and he, and he brought all of us along for the ride and we're all still thanking him for it to this day. His Batman is crude. It's bold. It's rough. But the ideas and the imagination were something that never existed before. The old man trope, the armor trope, now the bat tank trope. Oh my gosh, we still have seven tropes to get to, you guys. The smarter than Batman, I'm smarter than Superman trope. That had not been established before, but it was firmly, firmly established in the scene that for me would define the entire Dark Knight. The entire Dark Knight. We've already seen We've already seen Superman called into action by the U.S. government. And he reminds everyone in this one, this caption says, and he reminds everyone that giants walk the earth. Frank scripting. Holy crap. We've seen Superman single-handedly turn back armies overseas in the pages of Frank's Dark Knight prior to he and Clark having having a day out for horseback riding. And it is at that time that uh, Frank is is that that, that 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 they are meeting, and they are dressed in their civilian clothes, and uh, Superman <laughs> Superman has like this open shirt. He looks like he looks like Fabio. He looks like uh, like he should be on a romance, the cover of a romance novel. He's got this big kind of it, it's like the, the Seinfeld the puppy shirt. That's how Frank Miller kind of defines him. He looks like he's in the the Frank Miller puffy shirt. Okay, so so we've already seen Superman do some radical stuff. Well, Superman is standing in his puffy shirt, and he uh, they're they're talking about the fact how you know Clark's already dis- dismantled giant Soviet. Buildups and and, and and as Clark Kent, he, he draws Frank more handsome. Less there's no aging. He still looks like the Superman that we left behind, where where Bruce Wayne is grizzled, his eyes are a little crazy, a lot of wrinkles, receding hairline. And they're both on the uh, they're out riding horses. And again, the uh, the televisions are talking about the the Soviet threat put down, and obviously Superman's the guy behind it. And uh, as Superman stands in, uh, among the butterflies and the foliage and he's standing on a rock looking over a cliff while Bruce tends to the horses, the narrative said there's just the, there's just the sun and the sky in him. Like he's 
the only reason it's all here. Then he ruins everything by talking. <laughs> I mean, listen to that. Listen to that. Then he ruins everything by talking. Bruce, this is not right here. This page tells us we are not in world's finest anymore. And the way that, again, this relationship and this dynamic will be portrayed in works like Kingdom Come to follow. It was all established here first. Nobody had done it this way, like this, in this manner. Clark turns and says, you're not a young man anymore, Bruce. Maybe if you learn to slow down, find your niche. The times have changed and you, he pauses. Well, it's just not healthy. You're going to burn yourself up. And Frank's Bruce is tickling the dog's ear. He's kneeling down and he's kind of looking up with his crazy eyes as Clark as he suffers through his speech. Clark returns and says, I know, I know you, you, you look better than you have in years, but you're just not going to make me come right out and say it, aren't you? And Bruce says, nobody can make you do anything you don't want to do, Clark. So <laughs> literally talking to him like a child. And then as Clark speaks to him, Frank puts this giant American eagle um, flying behind Superman who has a, a mouse in his claws. Giant American. I mean, this supersized eagle. And 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 uh, Clark's in the foreground and it says, these aren't the old days, Bruce. World's got no room for... <laughs> Pauses. It's like this, Bruce. Sooner or later, somebody's going to order me to bring you in. Somebody with authority. When that happens, and then close-up, extreme close-up on Bruce's face. He says, when that happens, Clark, may the best man win. And Clark, flustered, tightens his, you know, posture and folds his arms and says, now, that's just, you hold on a second. Then, of course, Ronald Reagan signals him and he says, I, I have to leave. We'll talk later. And Bruce says, no hurry. <laughs> this had never been established prior. There were guys at the time, like John Byrne, who complained that he had to bring this aspect into his depiction of Batman and Superman because now DC viewed this, which was really an Elseworlds tale, as canon. They wanted this portrayed throughout. So in Man of Steel, when Batman and Superman meet, it's very nefarious. It's nothing like they've done anything anything prior. So John Byrne says, ah, this isn't how I, in, how I viewed Superman and Batman treating each other, but because Frank has established it, now I have to. And so I gave it my own kind of... Uh, spin and even says I had to go talk to Frank and ask Frank for consultation. John is completely bothered by this because at this time Frank is the most important guy in comics. He's eclipsed everybody between Daredevil, Ronan, and now Dark Knight. So so this idea that suddenly Batman is the smartest person in the DC universe and is able to outwit, outplay, utterly defeat and humiliate Superman, I only am speaking of Dark Knight. Anything that came 20 years later and any retcons to this, even by Frank himself, I'm not interested in. This is the classic work. The sequel to Dark Knight, I loved it. The sequel to Dark Knight, the, the, the third one, I love that too. They don't have introductions by Alan Moore. They weren't praised by Rolling Stone and the Village Voice, okay? We're going to stick with the seminal work, the stuff that revolutionized the industry. That's four tropes, okay? We're going to keep going. The Young Acolyte Movement, okay? The Young Acolyte Movement. The Sons of the Bat, Sons of the Batman that are introduced in Dark Knight 2 that want to do uh, kind of vigilante justice in Batman's name. I'd never seen anything like that before. And then I started to see it in all sorts of science fiction and, and, and television. And the, the young acolyte movement 
again, reflected in even the Christian Bale in, in the, in, in the sequel, you've got, you know, people who are trying to be Batman and dressing up like Batman. And it's confounding, you know, commissioner Gordon and the police force, but this idea that you can inspire a group of people to try and imitate you and be like you, uh, which, which, you know, comes in all manner of, of, of shapes. And so, I mean, like, again, dark Iron Man, uh, you know, just, just dark versions, um, spinoffs of, of the popular superhero in their name quotes in their name, uh, was, was, was something that had not been done prior to me seeing it done. And it was terrifying. Like a group of, you know, people becoming a mirror of this, this, this subject that they worship and doing, doing, uh, vigilante, vigilante acts. And again, you know, Bruce had to put them down. He, the, 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 the leader was completely and utterly out of control and he had to put them down and, and, and we got some terrific, amazing drama out of all of this. And, and, and again, so, so the sons of the Batman, uh, what, that, that is a trope, uh, that, that I had not seen prior and, and, uh, it, it, it and, and eventually, obviously, they they they, they come to uh, serve Batman throughout the course of the story, and at the end, he's alongside some of what do you call the the better, you know, the uh, the better behaved or the better, uh, you know, the 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 young sons of the bat with who have more promise, you know, who have more promise. Again, you know, the mutants are dead. This city belongs to Batman. And then the psychiatrist says, I predicted the youth, the Batman has infected the youth of Gotham, poisoned them with an insidious excuse for the most violent antisocial behavior. Honestly, this is the part of the Dark Knight that seems more like today than ever before. I mean, it's almost, um, it's almost, you see it reflected in, in our everyday life, our political um, movements, but the young acolyte movement established in fiction on the big, on the biggest possible level for the first time in the Dark Knight. Murderous Joker. Joker had been dangerous before. Joker had, had, had been dangerous. I had read all of the Neil Adams, uh, the, the, the Jim Aparo, uh, the Mike W. Barr, all of the Joker stuff that had been, you know, depicted. But now he was a murderous sociopath as appearing on the David Letterman show. Late night talk show unleashes the poison gas. I mean, it was the most sinister I had ever seen. And yes, this predates Killing Joke, okay? You don't get to Killing Joke without the work that Frank did on Batman. Making the Joker murderous gets us all the way to Heath Ledger. Jack Nicholson never did it for me. Yep, I just committed heresy. Heresy, I love him. I enjoy him. His portrayal is great, but it's not a Joker I want to repeat. And it's not a Joker I thought about upon leaving. The thing about the Keaton movie, which didn't affect me like it affected so many other people, I just recognized that it was a big screen adaptation. It was lavish. It was expensive. It was fun. Everyone looked good. Keaton in the in the mask looked good. Kim Basinger was gorgeous. Completely distracted me as a however old I was, 20, 21. But the Joker was was a great performance by Jack Nicholson, but it was Heath Ledger's Joker that I was like, ooh, we're in like this dangerous, he, I, I'm uncomfortable. The Joker in The Dark Knight portrayed a Joker that prior to that, I had never been uncomfortable with the Joker. Yeah, he had his big gaggly, googly, you know, criminally um, insane smile, but he was, you know, this murderous, 
psychotic sociopath that, that, that looked to have walked out of a Scorsese film, uh, a version of the Joker that I had never seen before. So that is our next trope, the murderous Joker. Okay, the bat symbol as a target. Frank talked about this right after it came out. So people would always joke, why does he put that yellow emblem right on his chest? And uh, I got to tell you, this, this may be the brightest, smartest, you know, game-changing aspect of the entire series is, uh, is, is when Frank establishes that that's exactly where he wants you to shoot him at, where he's got it padded with the absolute most Kevlar. In the first episode, he takes multiple wounds. Multiple guns are unloaded right into his chest. A magnum load hits me like a freight train. The plate holds. Why do you think I wear a target on my chest? Can't armor my head. Left arm numb. If it's a heart attack, I'm finished. He recovers. He does that killer upside down shot. And you see underneath shredded. The bat is shredded, but there is the thickest Kevlar armor. Mic drop. Oh my gosh. Wait a second. Never before established. Frank Miller had been keeping that under, you know, under a bushel. He, he was hiding it. And then he just sprung on all of us. Oh, the reason he wears the yellow album is that's exactly where he wants you to draw your fire. He is using it as a target to draw fire away from his head where it's the most padded, covered, Kevlar armored underneath. Unbelievable. Like, whoa. Again, do you understand now why these are all happening for the first time in 1986 in the pages of the Dark Knight? They didn't happen in the last 20 years. They didn't happen in the last 10 years. One arm green arrow, the damaged hero, the guy that's got something wrong with him, the guy that's got something missing, okay? And over time, post Dark Knight, you got way, way, way more of that, okay? Uh, replaced by robotic limbs, robotic arms, you know, the, the, the visual consequence of some something terrible gone wrong. Uh, you know, there wasn't a cable prior, so I couldn't say we ripped off his arm and put him with a new one. But the damage, I mean, I, I've told this story how after submitting Cable and all of the different, uh, you know, versions of him, all of which had a blinking eye and a scar, okay, uh, you know, the scar was over the left and the blinking eye, no, the scar was over the right and the blinking eye was over the left. And Jim Lee, of all people, said, hey, you know, you, 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 you. You got to have the scar over the one that has the blinking eye. And I'm like, this isn't your story to tell. Don't be telling me why. I'm like, no, he got clawed by Wolverine with that right there. That, that was my original intent that that eye was, you know, it still survived. He had an eye there, but it was, it was a battle, battle scar. And then I'm like, wait, so wait, the, the, the blinking eye only exists because we have to see a visual scar from where they put it in. No, I'm pretty sure the future that Cable comes comes from, that the eye and the technology and the virus all manifested underneath the skin. But the damaged hero, okay? Again, I took on parts of the $6 million man who had the bionic eye and the bionic arm. Again, a guy whose limbs had been rent asunder. But Green Arrow was on the biggest stage. The guy that was missing a limb. The guy that was missing an eye. The guy that was, I mean, these are the tropes that would follow. And they would follow in droves. But we have gone way over. I'm going to keep. So, damaged superhero as represented by one-armed green arrow. I mean, he's firing the bow with his mouth. 
I was on the floor in the comic store. Like he'd already met with Bruce and said, I want to be, I want to help you. I want to take him out, but you didn't understand how he would do it. And then there he is jumping in air, pulling the string back with his mouth, firing the kryptonite arrow at Superman. Uh, visually the, the, the thick stout Batman body type that you have now seen portrayed by fill in everyone that followed. Okay. Uh, that started with Frank Miller. Prior to that, you can look at Neil Adams. Prior to that, you can look at Jim Apero. You can look at Nick Cardi. You can look at Irv Novick. You can look at anybody who was drawn Batman at the time. You can look at George Perez, John Byrne, thin, leaf, athletic, very much a body type shared by Daredevil. I think it's almost because he had done Daredevil. He said, I don't want to give you this version. And he made him thicker as an older 50-year-old Batman. Thicker, more muscular. Like we've seen a lot of these guys age and get thicker um, and more muscular. And and it, a lot of actors, have, have we, we've watched them. Um, as they get older, like a Stallone and a Schwarzenegger, they can't get that tiny waist anymore, but they get the bigger shoulders, the bigger chest, the broader back. And again, that had never been, guys, that, that hadn't been depicted ever since. But how many guys have done it since? Like everyone I've named, then a hundred others. I, I, could, I could sit here and just keep naming and naming and naming and naming all the artists who have now followed. I mean, there's action figures, multiple action figures that depict and portray the thick, stout, more muscular, and wrinkles all over the costume, not just his face, all over the costume, so that you can see the movement. Ben Affleck, again, thicker, stouter, more beefy uh, Batman in his interpretations, whether it was in Justice League, Snyder Cut, uh, the, 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 the regular Justice League, the Justice League, Snyder Cut, Batman, Superman, uh, Zack Snyder wanted to give you that Batman. Uh, and, and it is definitely a visual uh, cue that they are somewhat uh, drawing upon the Frank Miller archetype, the Jim Lee Batman, the Greg Capullo Batman, uh, the Wills Protasio Batman. These are all Batman that reflect what Frank did. They are looking at the Batman body type, and that is the body type that they are giving you. Uh, and that has been something that has been going on. The Dave Finch the, the 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 Jason Fabok, everybody that I, I can think of who has had some, um, the Doug Menke, uh, all of the artists, especially over the last 15 years, have really dialed into this. Uh, since Dark Knight, Dennis Cowan, I mean, again, it's just my, my brain is overloading with all of these different versions. And uh, that was introduced. That is the first trope. The final trope, because we've done 10. And in review, just so you know, Old retired hero trope, bat armor trope, smarter than Superman trope, slash smartest guy in the DC universe trope, young acolyte movement trope, murderous joker trope, Batman, bat symbol as target, armored Kevlar target trope, one-armed green arrow slash damaged hero trope, batmobile as a tank trope, thick, stout Batman body type trope. Let's go with female Robin as our number 10. The female interpretation of the existing hero. There have been young sidekick heroes before. Okay, you got Wonder Girl, you got Robin, you got Kid Flash. But suddenly it was the female alteration of that. I did it with Bucky. I did it with Ricky Barnes in, in Captain America, Heroes Reborn, which was overtly inspired by what I loved about Frank. I, I There are many of these tropes that I am saying here that you 
that Frank established for the first time. Many of these that I'm sharing with you today, I, par I, I openly, unabashedly, unapologetically partook in and put them in my Captain America. I, I wore it on my sleeve. There was nowhere to hide it. It was right out in the open. Female Bucky, okay? And then, and then now, you know, we have Kate Bishop. We have the female Hawkeye and so on and so forth. And it continues. I mean, female Thor, it had already happened with Rick Hoberg years before Dark Knight, credit where credit is due. But suddenly, whoom, you know, rev those engines up. This is now a cool trope doing the female modification of the male superhero as sidekick. Starts with, starts with female Robin, okay? It, 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 it all started right here in the pages of Dark Knight as I think we've established so many things got started in the pages of Dark Knight. I mean, we, we, you just, you can run, but you just can't hide from how ridiculously, ridiculously influential that, 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 that this book is. Um, it is, uh, it, 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 it caused a giant stir. It caused a giant tidal wave and we've truly never looked back from it. I mean, if most people would only do, uh, <clears throat> One or two of those, they would be hailed as a visionary. So why is it that people get confused? Is it because maybe all the people who are openly borrowing the tropes don't want to acknowledge the source? Yes, that's and it's called recency bias. It's uh, it's called, well, if I don't mention it and they don't know better, and here's the thing that we've established today. A lot of fans don't know better. Now you do. You don't have that excuse. You know that the female Robin, the female... The, the, the changing from the male to female sidekick or female superhero kind of trope in the manner that it did, mainly in the sidekick, you know, department. The Kate Bishops, the Ricky Barnes, they were all established by Carrie Kelly, by female Robin. Frank just turned Batman upside down on its head, and I could keep going and give you more tropes. But so much of the flawed hero, the old retired hero, the, the bat tank, the bat armor. I mean, stuff that you now take for granted that you've gotten multiple toys, that everyone does their version of the bat armor. That Well, that's nice. It didn't exist prior to Frank. Everyone does the retired hero coming out from, you know, their, their secret existence. Well, that's because Frank did it. Visionary work, 1986, turned everything on its head. Uh, and it began and starts with this version of Batman because before this version of Batman, the version of Batman that you're getting now didn't exist. Full stop. End of story. Take me to the bank on this. Put me to the test. Uh, Dark Knight and 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 uh, even more so Frank Miller will, will, will bear it all out in the end. Woo! Woo, boy, we uh, we went down that uh, that rabbit hole. Just uh, wanted to go through and explain to you guys all the ways that Frank impacted Batman, the Dark Knight, forever more. And I just, uh, hey, if you learned something new today, I, I could not be more thrilled if we, re we, we we tickled something that hadn't been awakened in a while. Fantastic. It, just so excited to share. I love comic book history. I love uh, when, when there's something like a Batman holiday that we can kind of look back and see the drastic nature with which the character changed over time. Again, 
inspiring filmmakers as diverse as Christopher Nolan all the way through, you know, Zack Snyder and beyond. And, and obviously now with, with, uh, you know, with, with the most recent patents in film. So you guys, at the end of every episode, I read your reviews. You guys, your reviews help us stand out so much on the platform. And I got a funny one from you today. This is a really funny one. I really, um, uh, enjoy it. I'm going to, um, share this with you guys. When you guys share the positive word of mouth the way you guys do, when you guys leave these reviews, you, you, you help, you know, set the platform, set, set, set our podcast, um, apart on the platform and it's so important. And I, and I cannot tell you how extremely grateful I am that you, that you guys partake in this way. So today's review is from a gentleman or someone named Pangogo, Pangogo. And he gives us 10 stars, even though there's a maximum of only five. It says the review is called 10 stars. And there's five stars illuminated. As I read this, it says, New Mutants 100 was the first comic book I ever read. X-Force number one was the first book I purchased. All my money I received from chores went to extreme comic books. So many great memories from you and your peers. And this podcast is a great extension of that. So if you love Rob Liefeld or comics, then you're going to love this podcast. If you hate Rob Liefeld, well, I guess we know what you're going to do. You're probably going to listen anyway. You'll leave that one-star review, but deep down you know that you love Rob and you love his work. The mental gymnastics haters go through to justify that they're not a fan, but in reality they love Rob's work and creations is hilarious. My head hurts thinking back to the conversations I've had with Liefeld haters. Uh... Who explained to me that Deadpool is their favorite character, but that Rob Liefeld, the creator of Deadpool, is somehow not responsible at all. He says, lastly, any chance we can get an X-Force 92 series from you, I would love to see it. I'd love to tell you, I would love to have you tell those stories and please draw it as well. All the best. Pangogo! Hey, that is really kind. Thank you so much for leaving that Pangogo. You guys, I I do. The 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 I've, I've encountered the exact same thing that you have uh, d- expressed in this review, but you guys, it's so funny. And look, I'm all about the positivity and I just want to keep the show positive and fun and thank you for coming along on this ride. Thank you for taking the time out to write a very generous, uh, lengthy uh, expression of your enthusiasm for this show. Thank you. When you guys do that, I read that just as I, just as I read Pangogo's review. I will read yours at the end of every episode of Rob observations time permitting and we are fascinating running running out of time I am on Instagram at Rob Liefeld easy blue check at Rob Liefeld Twitter it's a little tougher it's Robert Liefeld I didn't get at Rob Liefeld so I had to settle for at Robert Liefeld both of them have blue checks I love talking to you I love the comments the mentions the DMs all the messaging that comes between Instagram at Rob Liefeld and Twitter at Robert Liefeld hit me on either platform, I love interacting with you guys. This this podcast has a Facebook page. Rob Observations with Rob Liefeld is a dedicated Facebook page. Uh, page, hit it, give it a like, give it a comment. I will find you. I will find that comment. I will hit you back. More importantly, we have a we have a group where we all gather together and chat and share, and it's called Rob Liefeld an Extreme Group. You're going to be um, welcomed in by either one moderator named Terry Sala S A L. A, or myself, Rob Liefeld. We are the moderators. We are the administrators. That is how you know you have found the right place. Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group come gather with thousands of fans who share the same interests. 
who liked Extreme Comics, X-Force, Deadpool, Cable, Domino, X-Men, Avengers, Fantastic Four. It covers my entire career. Everything I've done is up for grabs and game for discussion. So please find us, Rob Liefeld and Extreme Group on Facebook. We will click you through. Hey, I mentioned Whatnot earlier. Whatnot is an app. It is a, it is a collectible sales app. Again, trading cards, sports cards, um, game cards, you know, sneakers, apparel, uh, I'm in the comic books, toys, Funkos all the time. I do shows. We, we're trying to keep it to, to Wednesday and Saturday regularly uh, that you will see us on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Uh, sometimes the shows go long. Sometimes they're short. I love sharing with you guys regardless. Hit me up on whatnot. Follow Rob Liefeld. Get ready to, to boot up with us. People say this is an extension of the podcast because I am looking at you the entire time. I'm looking into the camera. It is a live stream. Your comments are coming through. I would love for, for you to join us on Whatnot. Down, download the app, sign on, find Rob Liefeld, bookmark my shows, follow me, and get ready for some fun. I try and bring all sorts of, uh, we, 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 we have books hot off the press before they reach uh, the stores because I get them delivered to me directly. We have all manner of toys and comics and Funko Pops that, that I draw on. I do remarks, their sketch art, all of it. Check it out. Uh, look forward to seeing you guys there. You guys know that at every at the end of every show, I encourage you to follow a, a something relaxing where you feed your soul spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically. Uh, hey, listen to this podcast while walking around the lake. That's that's doing both. That's mentally. Maybe that's also emotionally, and it's physical. Wow! Boom. Then come home and have a cupcake, and you have achieved. Uh, you 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 have crossed all four. I read comics. I do it in my sofa chair. I do it in my recliner. I have, um, you know, sometimes a great bag of chips. I have a bowl of nachos. I have a hamburger. Uh, I have a fried chicken sandwich. I have pizza. I have pasta. What, are you a junk food crazy person, Rob? More than you will ever positive, positive, positively know. I also do it in moderation and I drink lots of water. But for you, you got to escape. Escape into those treasury editions, those magazines, those comics, those trade paperbacks, those Absolute editions, hardcovers, um, your favorite run on a comic, watch some great streaming, some cool movie. I did this weekend. I kicked back. I watched some great fantasy films that I uh, fell in love with as a kid. Uh, you know, Sword and the Sorcerer, Beastmaster. Come on. I was completely back in my teenage, you know, self, just having the, having a blast. The Planet of the Apes cartoons from 1975 that I just loved. I have those. Frequently, I pop them back in. The bottom line is to take care of yourself, feed yourself, have an escape, whether that's a movie in in 40X where they squirt water at you and the, and, the, and the chair shakes like a roller coaster like I experienced when I saw Top Gun Maverick this last year. Do that. <laughs> that, that. That can also, you can check all the boxes. Mental workout, emotional satisfaction, physical workout because you're going to be shaken and being thrown in every which way. Uh, you'll be sore afterwards. Guys, take care of yourself. You know that is what I wish for you the most. Guys and gals, uh, wishing you all the best. I'm rooting for you. Please Swing back around, find me, I'll be here because we most certainly, absolutely, will talk again real soon.